2: oh, 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 is advised.
1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, and thank you for joining us for the 128th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. We will be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. Thank you very much for that, and if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic.
0: Sure. So that was a song uh, written originally uh, back in the day, actually, before the – it was actually recorded, long before it was recorded. Uh, It's off of uh, Green Day's American Idiot called Wake Me Up When September Comes. And it was a written a song written about uh, Billy Joe Armstrong about the death of his father when he was age 10 and how he was trying to cope with the grief of that. And I thought that'd be kind of a cool intro for tonight's topic.
1: Yeah. that Wow. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Um, as Dr. Mathis mentions, tonight's episode is Light Years Traumatic Grief with a nod to Pearl Jam for the light years. And we will discuss all that in a moment. So before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink recalls, a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir.
0: Well, sort of uh, taking up a lead uh, that you had mentioned a couple of shows back, I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit about uh, modeling and profiling because those are two related but very different phenomena. Uh, and, and in fact, the song I was playing tonight was a profile I had made based on my SWR acoustic amplifier uh, that I had stored on the Kemper, which is a profiler. Now, what for a long time modelers have existed, and, and I, I sometimes call them emulators. Uh, And what modelers are are very, very different from profilers. So modelers are basically transistor-based digital-type circuits that sort of mix analog and digital together uh, that are made to emulate or copy well-known effects pedals, uh, amplifiers, cabinetry, that sort of thing. Uh, And uh, depending on how well... The, uh, the digital circuits are programmed and how carefully they're done uh, depends on whether they sound like warmed over patootie or whether they sound relatively decent. When they came out in the 80s, late, middle to late 80s originally, uh, some of them are pretty rough. The higher end ones were not bad, but the the lower end ones were abysmal. Uh, as things have progressed, and they've gotten better and better. And there's several companies uh, today, particularly things like Positive Grid uh, or uh, Line Six, that make really good modelers. And their stuff sounds pretty all gone good. Um, however, uh, you know you could tweak them and do all kinds of things with them. And and now they make standalone amps that have basically amp modeling inside the amps, running through speakers or not speakers, and just the heads or whatever. Uh, And and they're great and fine for what they are. Um, But being an old school, mostly just old fart, but I digress, Uh, (laughs) old school guy who likes analogs and likes the organic-y sound of tubes, and and I just love the way they operate. Um, A lot of the the digital modelers just don't cut it for me. They're okay. They don't suck. If you get a nice one, they don't suck. Now, if you get one of the, you know, $50 $50 pedals or $100 pedals are probably going to suck. And if you get one of the cheapier amps, they're going to sound like ass. But if you get a decent one, like, for example, the Positive Grid I mentioned or some of the Line 6 uh, pedals, they, they're not cheap, but they sound good. You know, you get what you pay for. If you can afford it, kind of the step up from that, uh, from a modeling uh, amplifier or a modeler, is a profiler. And herein lies the Kemper which in my current understanding is the only profiling amplifier on the market. It's, it's the first one, and it is amazing. It is not cheap. It's about three times the price of a good, of a good model or amp, but, <laughs> but it's really worth it. And the difference is this. In, in, a, in a profiler, what you are essentially doing is you are digitally sampling with an analog microphone uh, the real-deal amplifier. So what you do is you get a uh, an amplifier of your choice, uh, you know, a, a, a tube amp, or if you're in Britain, a valve amp. <laughs> and uh, whether it's a Marshall or an Orange or uh, a High Watt or an Ampeg or a Fender, whatever, you know, whatever you're... Uh, flavor du jour is and you get your favorite model of that amplifier, that analog amplifier and you dial up the tone you like with the guitar that you want and then you, if you have the Kemper, you have um, XLR, mic jacks that go in the back, that are in the back of the Kemper and you plug a microphone in uh, and it, I'm going to make it sound easier than it is because it's a whole lot more complicated than this. But you pl- basically, it, it's sort of a plug and play, but not really. So you plug a microphone in, and you know you have to pick the right microphone, whether it's a condenser, a diaphragm, ribbon, you know omnidirectional, you know yada 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 yada. It's all these factors you have to know. And I don't want to get technical and bore the crap out of our listeners. And you have to have the sweet spot on the speaker. So is it, you know, a foot away? Is it on axis? Is it off axis? You know, angled down, angled up, you know, parallel, whatever. See, there's a lot of factors involved. But once you get the sweet spot of the amp and you get the sound that you want, then you turn the amp to profile and you start playing, and you hear all these lost in space sounds as it is literally taking a digital snapshot of your analog signal coming out of the amplifier. So if you use the right mic, and if you get the right tone, uh, you have about a 98% accurate replication of the amp because you're not uh, replicating it. You're taking a digital snapshot of an actual analog tone, and it's amazing. And the beauty of something like the Kemper is that you can store... Uh, It has a memory bank where you can store stuff, so it's it's almost like it has a digital recorder inside if you think of it that way. Uh, And then they make models that have amplification in them, and they make them that are just basically profilers, recorders, so you have to hook them up to an amp if you're going to play it through the speaker, but they make some that are amp and profiler in one uh, unit, which is what I have. you don't need that if all you're going to do is use in the studio, but Mr. Obsessive compulsive wanted to have it because I occasionally play out with it, and I don't have to take a separate head amplifier unit to push the Kemper through speakers. At any rate, um, it, yeah, I mean it, it, it sounds just really amazing, and you can once you get it in the Kemper, then all the controls on the Kemper act like controls on an amplifier. So if you record a really clean tone. Uh, at a specific volume on the Kemper, and you want to overdrive the tone, you just turn up the master volume, quote unquote, on the Kemper, and it's like overdriving the tubes on the amp, and it acts exactly like the amp does. So it, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, um, <laughs> and, you know, but it, it isn't cheap, and it looks like the front of an airplane panel control, and if you're a, a digital idiot like me, uh, let me tell you how many hours it takes to just turn the frickin' thing on and get anything that sounds reasonably decent out of it. Well, once you get something you like, you can store it in the memory bank, and there are a, slots for a 1,000 profiles in the camper. And then once you fill that thing up, if you're you know, the convulsive kind of person that you know, yours truly is, and you fill that thing up, then it has a little slot for a USB stick. And you put the USB stick in there, and you download the sounds to the USB stick, and you wipe the memory out, and you're ready for another 1,000. So however many – yeah. Wow. So however many USB sticks you have, uh, to quote a line from that. a Richard Pryor movie, <laughs> the bitch done gone <laughs> Uh I'm currently up to about, um, I don't know, 25 USB sticks. <laughs>
1: Wow! So, yeah. Yeah. You just want yeah. to have all the guitars it, ever.
0: <laughs> well, I have all the amps ever. Yeah, and and yeah. so you know what I what I did was, I have the USB sticks, and the beauty of that is you put them in a little you know folder, you put them in a little you know carrying dilly, and you carry that along with your Kemper head, and you walk into a studio with a couple of different guitars and you can dial up any amp you want. So I mean I have. Everything from '50s Gibsons and Supros to discontinued amps they no longer make anymore, like the WEMs, and just these weird amps you've never heard of. And many of them I'd never heard of. I'm no, like, what the hell is that? And I start playing it, going, oh shit. And I'm like, you know, recording it. Uh, and there are companies out there that sell profiles that they have done. There's studio guys who are much, much better at this than I will ever be, and they professionally record profiles of people's amps, in some cases famous amps. Um, There's there's a gentleman in England that runs a recording studio uh, and it calls the Amp Factory and I want to put a shout out to him because his profiles are the bomb. And he has access to things like all the amps for Oasis and David Gilmore's amps and uh, when uh, uh, Brad Paisley did his O2 thing, he went backstage and and profiled all Brad Brad Paisley's uh, you know, Dr. Z-amps, and, and, and it's, it's pretty ridiculously amazing. Uh, and of course I bought most of the profiles that he has. You can buy them in single, single uh, profiles or as packages. Uh, and there's a guy here in town, uh, Red Scholl, that does uh, decent profiles. I, well, I guess when I say decent, I mean good profiles, and I have some of his. And There's three or four people that I could recommend, but at any rate, you, you know, you pay, a, you pay a fee, you download the profiles, and then you stick them into the camper or keep them on the hard drive or put them on a USB stick and take them with you. And that's the beauty of this. So if I go into a session, I'm doing a rockabilly session, I can call up a, a 58 Fender Princeton or a Fender Champ or a Fender Oxford or whatever, uh, most of the amps of which are no longer even made anymore. Uh, and if you don't have oh, them, you know, nice. you, right? It's just, it's just really flipping cool. And of course, I you know, went went ahead and got profiles of a lot of the amps I own. Um and they're nothing as professionally done as the other folks I mentioned, Rhett's Amps or, or uh Andy of the uh the amps uh the amp factory in England. But, you know, they're doable but they're not they're not as professional as things he does. Uh, but, you know, I own the amps. It's like, you know, blow me i don't care sorry that was probably inappropriate but that's never stopped me before and uh, and you know they're good enough for me to take and take to a studio and play and they're like holy shit and that beats the hell out of carrying a you know a, a, an 80 pound head or a, you know 120 pound cabinet in the head and it's just like no i'm not
1: exactly doing
0: yeah, or it's if just you ridiculous. have one of the collectibles cases,
1: and, it, and it dies, you know, now you still have it until you can get it fixed.
0: Yeah, but well, and the, the beauty of it is, it's, you know, that the camper, they make two versions of it, and they make an amp-rack version. So if you have a studio, you know, you get the amp-rack version and put it in your, in your main control room. Uh, and then they make what's, what I would call a, uh, a lunchbox version. And it's not much bigger than an old school kid's lunchbox. And it's got the amp and the profile and everything. I mean, it's really cool. I I would would really encourage listeners to go look it up. It's really flipping cool. Um, And I have one of each. I got one for the studio, and I have one that I carry with me, the Lunchbox version that I carry with me. Um, So it's it's really cool. And it's got, you can download bass profiles, and you can also download um, pedals. So you can profile pedals, and there's a whole section of pedals. So I have everything from an old... Uh, uh, cent, uh, Klon Centaur Klon which they don't make anymore that you can't buy for a lover made like $5,000 for the pedal if you can find them I mean it's crazy stuff and I've got I went and profiled the guy's Klon and I've, I've got all these kind of things and I've got old uh, Hendrix Uniphase uh, Univibe uh, pedals on here I mean it's just crazy this stuff I've got and you can uh, profile cabinets and you can mix and match cabinets with heads and do all kind of crazy stuff I mean it's just ridiculous in, in a good way. Uh, it's really
1: ridiculous.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, and you know, when you're somebody like me, you like ridiculous in a good, good, convulsive way. And that's what this is. So I have, you know, so most of the time, I would say 90% of the time I'm using old school analog tube or if I was in England, valve amps. And when I'm not doing that, when I'm just doing quick and dirty, you know, live gigs that do a mix of, of types of music, I just take the... Uh, the camper with me and if I'm going to the studio I definitely get the camper with me Uh, because you never know you show up at the studio and you talk to the guys and they say oh yeah we're going to be doing this kind of session and you show up and you go okay you guys have no flipping clue what what music is that's not rockabilly that's country or that's not you know hard rock that's heavy metal I need a different amp and now I've got to drive all the way home or I've got to make do with the amp I'm like no 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 homie don't play that game Uh, you know and I've got a whole whole couple of sticks of heavy metal ENGO amps and, and Bugattis and all these like very nasty sounding amps, all these heavy metal thrash guys like, and, and I'm not slamming them. this, just not my thing, but you know, and they, they're supposed to sound nasty. That's the whole point, right? I'm not slamming them. Uh, and then I have all these old Uber clean fender amps and, all these weirdo you know kind of one-offs and two-offs that you don't see and a couple of amps i had made for me by an ant maker here in town they used to make amps amp, sure good Goodsell, he's one of the best ant makers on the planet as far as i'm concerned boutique guys so i've got all these cool things and i just walk into the studio with my camper about three different guitars and uh, my little portfolio with my sticks in them and they're all labeled, of course they are and, <laughs> and and they're all groups so yeah I, yeah a compulsive guy that's not well, organized and the label says not so so, you know, it's got uh, I have several sticks with old school fifties and sixties amps and a bunch of a couple of sticks with heavy metal amps and hard rock amps and kind of pop rock amps and acoustic amps and then I have a whole thing of bass. I've got one stick's got thing with bass bass amps and calves on it, so when I'm playing bass, you know, I can just take a bass with me and that. It's it's really cool. It's just really, 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 really cool. Uh, and then, you know, when I'm not doing that, if I'm if it's not, you know, a big deal, if, I'm, if I take a small pedal board with me, I'll take a couple of the digital modelers that I have. That uh, I'll take, like, like, my SWR acoustic amp when I'm doing acoustic gigs, because I like a lot of effects pedals, uh, on, on acoustic even. And I'll just take a small uh, pedal box, because I've probably got seven or eight different pedal boards, and they all have different pedal configurations on them. And the vast majority of them are analog pedals, but I have one or two boards that have line six digital modelers on them, and that's what I take with me because they're smaller boards, and I get kind of more bang for my buck, and it's an acoustic dilly, and most of them are things like echo units and modulators like phases, flanges, choruses, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I use a combination of all three, but by the vast majority of things that I use are analog, uh, and all the, all the other effects pedal boxes that I have are all old-school analog. Uh, pedals. I have like an original MXR that was made back in the 70s, and a Mutron bipase that people, you know, kill their children for, and uh, <laughs> that they, they don't make anymore. And they they made a remake of it a couple of years ago, but frankly, the, reta- the remake sounds like dog do. It's horrible. Uh, the original uh, they don't make anymore, and those things will go anywhere from five to 12 grand for one of those pedals. Uh, so. I'm not selling mine anytime soon, I can guarantee you that. It's the nope. best sonic phaser on the planet, bar none, end of story. It's a flipping amazing. So I use mostly analog stuff, but when I'm going digital, I'm going to go to a profiler, which basically means I'm using a digital version of an analog signal. So I'm still kind of using analog, sort of. <laughs> oh, anyway, that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, and I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about that because I use the Kemper a lot for these shows. Because it's easy to hook up to a computer because it's got a USB out and you, you know firewire out and you just go, you know, oh, and yeah. hook it up, and,
2: yeah.
0: right? And so most of the things that the listeners hear me do here on the show is through the Kemper uh, profiles that I've made of my own amps or profiles that I've gotten from Rett Shoal or uh, the Amp Factory or one of the other. Uh, There's about four uh, purveyors of really good modeling. Uh, software that they have done they've you know modeled the amps and you know, saved them and sent them in the form and I have no problem buying them and, and they're really not expensive I mean a lot of these guys and then you know like everything else they have sales periodically and you get stuff for half price and third off and stuff and so you, mean, you can get a whole collection of uh, amp profiles for not a whole lot of money and uh, you know, the, the initial investments you know laying out the $3,500 for the Kemper 38, whatever it is now. Um, and the rest of it is just getting the profiles and then learning how to use it. And, you know, five approximately 500 hours later, I can actually turn it on and, like, dial something up that sounds decent. Uh, but most of the listeners out there are not dummies like I am with digital gear. So uh, it, it took me a minute. But, uh, you know, I, I can operate it, so I'm not complaining. But it was definitely a learning curve. Most of the digital stuff the modelers are not nearly as difficult as the learning curve. But the higher up you get in the modeling world, like when you get to some of the higher-end line-six stuff or you get to the, um, the, the positive grid or whatever, it, it can get dicey. Uh, you know, and then they make those for computers, then interface with the computer. Uh, they showed a committee box up and playing through the computer and you know, people like uh, IK Multimedia, Multimedia. Uh, do those plug-ins for things like uh, Logic Pro or, or uh, Pro Tools or whatever, and they do a really good job with their stuff, really good job with their stuff. IK Multimedia makes some of the best, in my humble opinion, makes some of the best uh, modeling software for computers, uh, not for performance play out, uh, for studio stuff around. And I would say that they are their amps and pedals and stuff are probably – Close to uh, Universal Audio stuff and Universal Audio makes predominantly plug-ins now they make some amp stuff too, they make a fender a whole f- set a set of whole f- fender amps and whole thing uh, Mostly dedicated to studio stuff with limiters compressors um, digital delays reverbs and stuff and uh, strips channel strips uh, that are based off the Neve stuff and done in conjunction with the, the Neve company, which is most of my Listeners will know if you're a musician is like the pinnacle of pinnacles when it comes to mixing and studio stuff. There. To quote Beavis and Budhead, I'm on, on higher <laughs> um, <laughs> when you're dealing with that stuff. But you know, to get an EVE board today will run you anywhere from a quarter of a million to a million plus to get a decent EVE analog board. So it's a lot cheaper to buy the, uh, the plug-ins for, uh, for uh, Studio uh, Logic or, or Logic Pro or uh, Pro Tools.
1: Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm just in
2: awe. So there you <laughs> <have> it. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's a right. lot.
0: I mean, and I apologize if I've overwhelmed the listeners today, but I wanted to give them a good sense of what that was like because uh, it's not just you. You plug a guitar in or a, amp, a bass or whatever, and you just kind of go. I mean, it's complicated uh, when you start getting into this stuff. And actually, but, you know, in fairness, if you get a, a, an amp, you know, whether it's a Fender or a Marshall or an Orange or whatever – um, it, to really know the amp and to understand the amp and, and to kind of you know be one with the amp so to speak and know its quirks <laughs> and to play it and get the best tone out of it, you got to play with it a while. It's not just plug and play. I can't tell you how many musicians I run into who I go over there and show them how to use their amplifier and they've got really nice gear, and I'm just like dude, you've got a freaking $3,000 amplifier, and you don't know how to use it? Really? It you got a $15,000 presentation tailor and you don't know how to get good tones out of it? Give me the guitar. You don't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. And, and one of the persons I so speak with, I'm good friends with, and, with and I, lo- you, uh, I love this guy. Them. And he's a, he's a signed recording artist and has no idea how to, how to operate his own gear. And I'm just like, you got to be oh, fucking kidding me. He's predominantly a vocalist, and and he's a really good oh, vocalist, okay. uh, right? But he but he's kind of like Elvis. He likes he like sings predominantly, but occasionally strums guitar and whatever. And he's got a really nice gear, so I, I'm sure somebody helped him pick it out because he doesn't know, you know, what about gear. And I'm not slamming the guy because, you know, he's got a recording he didn't want to do. It I don't. So there you have it. <laughs> but, um, he doesn't. know. I, I literally had to go in and show him and explain to him what all the knobs were and how they work, and kind of gave him a live demo and. He was like, oh, wow, that sounds a lot better. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's oh funny. It's funny, but it's not. But anyway. So anyway, I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to go on uh, so long, but yeah. I wanted to give the audience kind of a background of stuff I do. And, you know, this stuff isn't easy. And it's kind of like you doing the background, you know, work for the, the topics. I mean, it's not like you just open a couple of articles and cut and paste and go, okay, I'm ready. All right. It's, oh, you put God, a lot of no, work into stuff. Now, yeah, well, you, I, well, yeah, no shit, right? You used
2: to tease me, and, like, and you know, I stand do a lot up a
0: of crap
1: work. term paper every two weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, well, yeah, I mean, and you, you put a lot of work into this stuff, and I, I don't know if the audience, the listening audience, really is aware of how much effort you put into it and how much time it, it, it takes for you to do what you do. Uh, and, you know, I remind everybody, and I'm not, you know, please don't pull out the Stradivariuses and start playing, you know, Hearts and Flowers, but <laughs> wouldn't, you know, you know, why I'm getting paid for any of this, and we do it because right. we feel like it's our, you know, civic duty, if you will. And I, and and I love doing it, and I'm not bitching about it or whining or going, "Hey guys, you know, hit, hit, you know, this is my, you know, I'm building a recording student in Idaho fund, you know, fund me, fund me, <laughs> go, go fund me, or whatever." <laughs> um, but I, I want listeners to know that when you when you come up with these topics and we start talking about them, it's all. Flipping a lot of work on your part. Yeah. You know?
1: Not going to lie. It's it's a lot of data. And you got to know what parts to leave out because, you know, when the script starts getting to be 15, 20 pages, that's when we get the three-parter in there. (laughs) Which, you know, if if we got something to say, I remember when we did like the ADHD episode, you know, we really needed to not cut things out because we had a lot of stuff we wanted to tell people, but. It's a lot of writing oh, same thing with, to do
0: that yeah, and the same thing with the addictions. we did three or four episodes yeah. we had to break them in the two in anywhere from two to four parts because we didn't want to give them short shrift, but didn't we didn't want people falling asleep at the wheel either, you know no it's 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 always a balance, you know, and I just wanted to let audiences know that what I do with music is not plug and play and it's over, and what you do with the information and the topics and Coalescing all this data that you get from different sources is not, you know, five minute, ten minute, even one hour process. It's a multi hour process, and you having to source and edit and you know separate the wheat from the chaff and that sort of thing. It's just a lot of work, and you know, I'm, certainly I'm glad that you do that, and I would hope that the audience would find uh, benefit in it. I can tell you that several of my patients have surprised me by saying, "Yeah, I noticed on your last podcast three weeks ago, you did so and so." Like, huh? <laughs> you, know, you guys listen to my podcast yeah it well, did yeah, yeah. me about i, I was really a 17 cool. year old boy, uh, kid which really shocked the crap out of me
1: wow
2: well yeah hello, like, oh yeah you, you said are i love that <laughs> i love
0: that phrase you used on that workshop you did the other a couple of weeks ago i listened to that when you were talking about addictions and da 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 and i'm like huh yeah and you played that song i never heard it but i, I don't know radio but i knew who it was and you were talking about it and I, and I'm just and I'm just kind of sitting there with my mouth open, <laughs> like what? You listen to my Bond like, show? You like very dear show? This is it was
1: like funny. why we do this. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know we we enjoy it. I know, but want to help people with the stuff expect, we
0: know. I don't expect my adolescent clients to listen to it. Their parents are much more, a much less surprised when they go, Yeah, yeah, you know, it was a good show. You you and that girl did on da 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 da. I'm like, Yeah, Casey's okay, <laughs> got her shit together, da-da. right? And it's just, it's just funny. Uh Yeah. I, but, you know, I, I expect, you know, folks, adult folks to, to be more, you know, thoughtful and listen to stuff. I don't expect 17 and 18 year old kids to go, dude, oh, that show rocked. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, what's the yeah. thing they say now—that oh, just slapped. <laughs> yeah. That's apparently anyway, the thing. Anyway, let me
0: let me shut up and let's get to the real the real stuff we're talking about. So I apologize, I didn't mean to monopolize so much of your time. There,
1: it's all good. We're here for the music, you know, m- mental health and mental health. So, it, you know, it's it's there all wonderful. But but let's do some thank you applause for that. <laughs> The trivia story is always kind of fun, always appreciated. So um, it's 1130. Again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. So please feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 914 Alrighty, it's meat and potatoes time, episode 128, Light Years, Traumatic Grief. Um, Light Years is a Pearl Jam song about somebody having passed away. Uh, so tonight's topic deals with the professional mental health community's handling of basic grief versus complex traumatic grief. And I'm not necessarily using the most updated terminology when I say that. And that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Whether or not and how they should be represented in diagnostic references such as the DSM-5 or the ICD-11, we talk about both of those a lot here. So most of our regular listeners should be at least a tiny bit familiar. So grief itself at a basic level is a universal natural reaction to losses. And just about everybody will experience it at a basic level multiple times in their lives. Obviously, based on the value of the person that you've lost or object, place, event, or other major losses, grief has many levels, and this can affect a person's ability to cope with their feelings and to be a functional person after the loss event in question. There is no single healthy, appropriate reaction to grief. It's not one size fits all, not even close. Additionally, in the United States specifically, if one wants to be able to get professional help in coping with grief, even basic grief, there must be a diagnostic code attached to the symptoms being experienced, and so at least for now, there's a pragmatic need to fit grief into the mental health clinical system. In recent decades, grief has gone from being in the DSM to being taken out to having recently put back in again and in and out, and we're doing the hokey pokey. <laughs> So tonight we will discuss the diagnostic history of grief and traumatic grief. And let me tell you guys, that was actually super crunchy enough where I just took a tiny chunk of it because it got to be a lot. Um, And then basic grief, traumatic grief, and complex grief, none of which are actually the the terminology that's currently being used. We will get to that in a second. Uh, Section 3, how to know when grieving goes too far. And then, of course, we always wrap up with conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. And before we get started, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything that you want to bring up before we dive in.
0: No, I'm good. I just want to say that I like in and out too.
1: There's tons of in and out Love it. Come to read the meetup. All right. So let's get go. started. The Diagnostic History of Grief and Traumatic Grief. So first, let's talk about the history of the shifting use of grieving in diagnostic settings. This first part is notes that I culled from a very long paper. Um, It's from the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work in New York. And it has some commentary on diagnostic criteria. This is just about the most updated versions I could find. So they had to say this, the most recent versions of standard official diagnostic guidelines, and and this is referring to grief, include a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder in DSM-5 and ICD-11. That is the, quote, official terminology that I mentioned earlier that I hadn't been using. And I'm actually going to pause my notes to point out a thing. I mention it later, but I want to get this off the table now. One of the reasons we wanted to do this show is people taking issue with pathologizing grief because a lot of the guidelines and the criteria really are not realistic and appropriate boundaries for people who are grieving. There are people who are grieving that have problems, but a lot of people are feeling pathologized over a reaction that's fairly normal. In fact, this happens a lot in trauma diagnoses. I know it's happened to me as a PTSD person that essentially I've got a lot of really screwed up reactions, but if you'd done what I'd done, you'd have them too. And grieving is suffering from the same thing, and this is upsetting people who are grieving because they feel like they're being made to sound like there's something wrong with them because they're not over it. And this is why I and one of the things that upsets them all the different terms for the same damn thing, and some of them are synonyms, most of them are not, but they're used interchangeably by a lot of people that really don't understand and I can see where that's upsetting because if you just lost somebody, you have enough crap on your plate without this and that's why I wanted to point at it, but the term that is in the dsm is prolonged grief disorder and this is not what was in before and we're going to get to that in a little bit that has to do with depression so this is the condition that in the past up to the last couple years uh the psychological community had been calling complicated grief and i'm going to get to definitions and stuff in a bit because these are very specific things. They sound interchangeable, but they're kind of not, and I'm going to walk you through it. Okay, in the ICD-11, remember that comes from the WHO, in 2018, the World Health Organization approved a new diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder. Guidelines for this diagnosis include the occurrence of a, quote, persistent and pervasive grief response characterized by longing for the deceased or persistent preoccupation with the deceased, accompanied by intense emotional pain, such as sadness, guilt, anger, denial, blame, difficulty accepting the death, feeling one has lost a part of oneself, an inability to experience positive mood, emotional numbness, difficulty in engaging with social or other activities, end quote. And there's a link where you can find the full guideline. Allow me to please point out that almost everything in this definition I just read to you is part of the kinds of things where people are betching that regular grief is being pathologized because almost everything they just said without context and without further examination of the situation really kind of just makes it seem like anybody who's grieving is kind of a dumbass. (laughs) And this is what we're poking. Okay. The next part in the DSM five, they were a little slow in the uptake, but in 2020, The APA approved a new diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder for the DSM-5. This this criteria is more specific. However, uh, the data from this study and data of others confirms they harmonize well, meaning it's not that wacky compared to the one in the ICD-11. That doesn't always happen, as you guys may know we've talked about. So DSM-5 PGD, which... As I mentioned above, now I've got to go look it up. Make sure I have it right. Prolonged grief disorder uh, requires the occurrence of a persistent and pervasive grief response, characterized by persistent longing or yearning. Yes, it sounds familiar to the above, but there's some slight differences. And/or preoccupation with the deceased, accompanied by at least three of eight additional symptoms that can include disbelief, intense emotional pain feeling of identity confusion, avoidance of reminders of the loss, feelings of numbness, intense loneliness, meaninglessness, or difficulty engaging in ongoing life. Differential diagnosis notes. PGD is most, most often confused with depression. This is going to come up later because this is how it used to be used. They would have something where they would use bereavement as an exclusion for depression but they kind of went too far and they were a little weird and arbitrary with the guidelines so they took it out for a bit and then they put it back doing the doci do all right so there is solid evidence that treatment for depression is far less helpful than targeted grief treatment so this difference is important core symptoms of pgd are persistent yearning and preoccupation with the deceased whereas core symptoms of depression are pervasive pre-floating sadness, and loss of interest and pleasure. They're not focused on a person you just lost, although you could be grieving and get depressed, but it's not automatic, and that's what they were trying to correct. These differences can help you distinguish grief from depression. Prior editions of the DSM had what they called the bereavement exclusion in depression to separate grieving from depression. It was taken out for a while in the early days of the dsm-5 because of problematic criteria but has since recently been put back in with changed purpose and criteria its appearance with diagnostic codes is not intended to pathologize basic grief oh that got misspelled my apologies you guys can't see my uh autocorrect messing me up here um it's not pathologizing basic grief nor implying that mourning for more than a short time is atypical or pathological without other concerning factors. That it, The whole thing's subjective. We're going to keep walking you through it, but I wanted to make that one point. And with that, I'm going to wrap this section and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if you'd like to add anything.
0: Nope, I'm good. Thanks.
1: Okay. Let's go to Section 2. And this is primarily... Differences in definitions and just giving definitions. It's basic grief, traumatic grief, and complex grief. And we didn't really mention PGD, prolonged grief, but it enters into here. We'll mention it later in the chapter. So now let's talk about different levels of grief and agree on a definition of those and some related terminology. A portion of the alarm and contention about how grief is handled as diagnosis appears to be rooted in the mixing up and or the misuse of terms. Levels of intensity, duration, treatment, and other factors can vary widely by individuals who are grieving. All right, basic grief. Grief is a natural response to losing someone or something that's really important to you. You may feel a variety of emotions like sadness or loneliness, and you might experience it for a number of different reasons. Maybe a loved one died, a relationship ended, or you lost your job. Other life changes like chronic illness or a move to a new home, especially if you didn't want to, can also lead to grief and basic grief. Also, one can grieve other things than the death of a person, loss of your home, and, you know, again, mentioning having to move, uh, school problems, natural disasters, other life traumas, health problems, loss of your support system, like your children are adults and move away for jobs or getting married and they're not with you anymore and you never see them. Financial ruin, several examples of things you could be grieving that are not someone died. For purposes of tonight's discussion, however, we will basically be assuming someone is grieving a person that has passed away. It is unusual that many of these other kinds of events evoke a level of response that becomes pathological on its own. In other words, like let's say you were not fully sorted out and you had bipolar or depression or some other thing going on with you. And then you grieve someone. Sometimes, you know, you you may be grieving something like health problems, like I've got a health problem, now I can't do a thing. Um, but if you have stuff going on before this is announced, sometimes you can be grieving that pretty heavily, even though it's not a person dying. So, again, it's just one more tick in the column of that these things are super subjective and that not all of the mental health community has done that a job of taking this into consideration. They keep trying to make everybody fit in the box, and it's not working out too good. All right, the next definition I want to talk about has several terms. These are interchangeable. Complex, complicated grief, persistent, complex bereavement disorder. The last one is the official term when it's complicated grief, and that has certain criteria above and beyond basic grief, and we're going to talk about that. Pardon my hiccups. All right, so here is where criteria starts to get contentious and complicated. There are several symptoms which are intrusive or concerning but may still yet be understandable and a normal reaction to loss. Many listed definitions of criteria are subjective and open to interpretation and context. Many use words like excessively, which have to be contextualized to be usable. So according to several sources, here are some signs to look out for if you're looking for complex grief, also known as complicated grief, more often known now as persistent complex bereavement disorder. Being unable to accept that the loss has occurred. Excessively avoiding reminders of their loss. Excessively seeking proximity to reminders of things that remind them of the person they've lost. It's a lot of reminding. Experiencing persistent and intrusive thoughts about the person you've lost. Um, Not why that says be useful. There's a stray comment in there that got probably from another sentence I moved. Okay, so I'm just going to get rid of that. Uh, Feeling a sense of loss of purpose in life. Intense longing for a person who has died. Obsessively thinking about their loss or suicidal thoughts. Symptoms of complicated grief might also manifest physically. People with the condition might also experience loss of appetite, insomnia, stress, and weakened immune function. I know a lot of places talk about how when your body is physically stressed, um, it does grip your immune system. So these things can happen because of complicated grief. <clears throat> they honestly can happen because of basic grief, but the differences between the two are a matter of volume and severity. Causes. There is no identifiable cause of complicated grief. You know, why do some people have it and other people don't? Some people might be more at risk of developing the condition than others. Certain risk factors might make a person more susceptible to experiencing the condition, and they can include people who experience an unexpected or shocking death of a loved one, people with a history of mental disorders, and that doesn't mean, oh, you're crazy, but if you've got some pathologies on your plate already, then dealing with grief on top of it can make you susceptible more strongly to having it turn into complex grief. People with a history of substance abuse. People who experience more than one death within a short period. A lot of people who lost someone during COVID lost multiple someones. And so the mental health community should not be shocked, or really nobody should be shocked, if we start seeing, we probably already are, they just haven't tabulated all the, statistics yet, but you're going to start seeing a lot more people having complex grief because a lot of people lost a lot of people in a year and a half. And that's screwing some people up. Not being present when the loss occurred. And these next two kind of sound contradictory, but, you know, you don't have to have both happen. Not being present when the loss occurred so you have a lot of energy about the fact that you weren't with them when they died. But then you could also have a lot of energy about witnessing the loss in real time. That can also be upsetting for a different angle on it. All right. This is not the list of symptoms. This is the next comment that they had. Interference with the healing process of normal grief could also cause complicated grief. Some types of loss might also cause complicated grief. For instance, loss of a child or a person's significant other, you know, boyfriend, partner, girlfriend, spouse, uh, a similar role. Complicated grief has also proven to be more prevalent in older individuals. You get people who have been married 50 years and then they lose someone, but they've still got some decades in them. And this happens a lot to widows and widowers. Um, Is complicated grief the same as persistent complex bereavement disorder? Diagnosis assigned to individuals who experience an unusually disabling or prolonged response to bereavement. It was formerly known as complicated grief disorder. Persistent complex bereavement disorder causes sufferers to feel extreme yearning for a deceased loved one, usually over a prolonged period. And we'll have some more definitions below that will help with that. Traumatic grief. And this is not the same as complex grief. It is separate, and you can have both. A loss, assuming a death, under traumatic circumstances, such as a violent death like a crime or a natural disaster, or an unexpected death, a um, drunk driver or some particularly pernicious kinds of cancer, all of a sudden, boom, five weeks are gone. Um, This is not completely unrelated to PTSD. In fact, when they put it back in the DSM, the coding was right down the hall from PTSD. And this is not an accident. Studies have examined traumatic loss among groups such as elderly caregivers of terminally ill spouses, young adults who lost a friend to suicide, and parents who lost a child in a traffic accident. These have shown ensuing symptoms in two categories. First, separation distress, involving preoccupation with thoughts of the deceased, longing, searching, loneliness, and impaired functioning. And two, traumatic distress, feeling disbelief, anger, mistrust, and detachment from others. Um, Now I want to define for you bereavement. These, these words are very similar and used a lot together, but they're not completely interchangeable. There's slight differences here. So bereavement is the condition of having lost a loved one to death. In other words, it's slightly different from grief because you can grieve, I was going to go to Harvard and my scholarship got blown up and now I'm never going and my life is over, pulling out an example, or I... My house burned and I had to move away suddenly to a new house and it sucks. Um, you can grieve these things, but you would not be bereaved by them. And that's the distinction I'm drawing. It also plays into the new definition for the pathology because they are focusing on losing somebody, a loved one who has died. Now, what is the difference between mourning and grieving? Again, subtle but present an important definition. Um, According to the source I used, they described it this way. I think it's a little excessive, but I'll try to walk through it with you. So they said, think of grief as the container. It holds your thoughts, feelings, and images of your experience when someone you love dies. In other words, grief is the internal, meaning given to the experience of your loss. Mourning, is when you take the grief that you have on the inside and express it outside yourself. In other words, you're feeling the grief inside you when the person dies. Mourning are the things that you do to express the grief that's in you, and you are expressing it outwardly to the world. The other comment that I want to make is that coming up with a diagnosis for these things... And they're going to do this when it's more than basic grief. Basic grief doesn't get a diagnosis. Getting a diagnosis for your grief doesn't mean you, quote, have a disease. Does your grieving interfere with your ability to carry out your daily life, responsibilities, enjoyment, self-care, schedule, etc.? Then you might. Why do you need to diagnose it? Well, when you have... Issues, when you have symptoms that are above and beyond basic grief, a doctor would need to know, did you have any conditions or factors prior to the loss? Could there be physiological causes? And this will help determine treatment. And it won't always be the same treatment for different people experiencing similar losses. You have to factor out their health and their mental state and what's going on what did they have on their plate before it happened. Um, you can't do that one-size-fits-all, and that's why you need to diagnose it. It doesn't mean that you're diseased or broken if you're grieving. And this is one of the things that's been going on a lot in social media and some of these communities and forums and so on. So I wanted to be sure to make that point. And with this, I'm going to wrap up Section 2 and check in with you, Dr. Mathis, see if you want to add anything.
0: Yeah, I think your point is well taken about um, that this is not a one-size-fits-all. And, you know, it also depends on your genetic makeup, your resiliency, your age. I mean, it's a lot of factors involved. And if you're wondering whether it's pathological or not, or you're grieving, quote-unquote, too long or not, that's why you come see somebody like me to go, nope, you're you're being pretty rational with your grief or... Yeah, you know, 10 years later, you might be holding on to this a little too much. And, you know, and it also depends on the length of relationship you had with the lost objects. I mean, if you've been married for 30 or 40 years and you you lose a spouse, excuse me, or a partner or whatever, uh, you're not getting over that in a year. You're not getting over that in two years, probably, you know, uh, So I think it's kind of ridiculous for us to put a time limit on something. Now, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, you're still having issues. Yeah, we need to talk. That doesn't mean you forget about them. That doesn't mean they don't have an important part of your life. It just means that the grief that you're experiencing doesn't uh, interfere with your day-to-day living, that you're able to carry on in spite of that. And I would also add that you're able to take some fond remembrance of the lost person and bring a smile to your face when you think about something that reminds you of them except just focusing on the negative stuff.
1: Got it. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to be over my things in 10 years, but we'll see. But, you know, to be fair, I'm also holding down a job. I am hygienic. You know, I see my friends, so... Even right. though I'm feeling, well, and that's kind of the points that we're getting at. You know, I have complex traumatic grief. I, I've had 26 people die since New Year's of 2020. And most of them were good friends, family members, and only one was from COVID. So I'm kind of effed up. But on the other hand, I'm also very resilient. there's all the factors we are talking about. You know, I have a support system to a point. Um, you know, I can check in with people, I can let them know, I can't even, somebody send me pictures of cats. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I can do that, and somebody will. You know, so so all these things kind of matter, definitely. All right, so let's talk about the last part, which is just the the next natural thought here. How to know when grieving goes too far. All right, so how long is too long to mourn? This is a rather toxic notion in our society that was culturally handed down from prior generations that felt it was shameful to be seen or known to be grieving, quote, for too long, usually measured in a handful of months at the most generous. There is no such thing as a deadline because the, quote, five stages of grief and other forced structured models do not follow reality reactions, memory triggers, intensity, and other symptoms come and go. They may flare up again and often randomly. It is incorrect and not useful to force anyone's grief to fit a time-based mold. Also, people grieve differently depending on how they felt about the person they lost, assuming they're grieving a death, which, as I mentioned earlier, we are. You cannot just go by, if it was a parent, I mean, maybe they didn't get along with their parent or their parent was abusive. Um, It could be a spouse, partner, a child, or a friend. You know, these labels mean different things to different people. You know, somebody might have somebody in any one of those roles who they're very close to, or they might have someone that they've been contentious and toxic with and You know, it's almost uh, like a relief. And and then they feel bad that they shouldn't be relieved about it. And then there's more trauma going on. So if we cannot use time or the relationship to measure a grief boundary, how would one know if they or someone they care about has been grieving in a way that's unhealthy? Okay. This should be weighed by the grieving person's health, self-care, functionality and general quality of life for example does the grieving person carry out their job schooling or maintain their residence do they perform a basic level of self-care grooming cleanliness tending to health care needs etc you know for example i bathe and i smell fine i'm not always getting all my health stuff done because my partner was helping me get all the things done, and now I've got to do everything. So I don't have the time I used to have, but I'm out there trying, and the ones that are really important and life-critical I'm doing at least, and these are the differences. And even if it's not to the exact levels that they usually had been doing before, are they doing something? Are they keeping up with the bills, at least in part, obligations? Occasional hobbies or decompression activities or asking for help if when they struggle to do so. Do they communicate with family, friends or other support system people on a regular basis or did they vanish? You know, or are they sinking into unfunctional depression or worse suicidal ideations? It's um, not super common, but depending on who it was, this happens. Um, allowing their basic grooming, health, and self-care to wither? Do they isolate and shut everyone out? Do they self-medicate with food, booze, drugs, obsessive activities, etc.? And again, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, why do we need to diagnose it at all? Well, in basic grief, with little or no damaging symptoms or behaviors, you actually kind of don't need to. But If a person is unable to lead a basic, typical life where day-to-day obligations and needs are met, a mental health professional will need to know whether the problems were brought on by grief or are they pre-existing? Are they indicative of a new health problem brought on by prolonged stress or something else entirely? You know, this could be genetics. It could be environment. you, You never know. A proper diagnosis will ensure that professionals know the source and extent of any quality-of-life problems, which in turn will lead to the correct treatment for what's happening. Some pre-existing health conditions can exacerbate typical grave responses. And with that, I'm going to check in with you, Dr. Mathis.
0: Uh, I think I'm good.
1: All righty. So conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. In summary... We hope now that our listeners better understand the differences in severity of the universal experience of grief, and that this equips them to better handle it when it happens to them, as well as to be better supporters when it happens to those around them and those about whom they care. We hope this information contributes to a more common, healthier attitude towards grief in our culture and our society. And Dr. Mathis, is there anything else that you want to say about the topic in general? I would just say
0: that if you, I was just going to say if you think, you know, if you're a person out there who thinks that they might be suffering from uh, unresolved grief issues or complex trauma or whatever, don't wait to consult somebody because, you know, at worst they'll confirm what you think and then you'll get some help, and at best they'll go, nope, you're being neurotic. Get out of my office,
2: (laughs) and and that'll be a good thing too,
0: (laughs) right? And yeah, that'll be a good thing too. So you know, this is the kind of this thing, as you know, is not the kind of thing like a lot of uh, situations don't get better with time. They're not like wine, so you want to catch them early. And if it's nothing, then that's great to put your mind at ease. And if it's not, then you get the help you need and you move on your way
1: excellent so i hope people do take that to heart um and it is the top of the hour so on behalf of myself dr mathis and NDB media we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast itunes iHeartRadio, radio tune in spotify etc so we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion on wednesday april twenty seventh, 2022 at uh, 11 p.m. Eastern time right here on blogtalkradio.com. By the way, I'm going to have an MRI under sedation just a few hours before I come talk to you guys. Hopefully, I won't say anything silly, but just in case, I thought I'd warn you. Also, next time we do the show, everything will be fine, but I want to give you guys a heads up. Um, Dr. Mathis is in the process of moving to another state. And speaking of support system, going other places, sniff, sniff. Um, So the next show will be fine, but sometime in our not too distant future, we may have some scheduling fuckery going on. And, you know, we'll let you guys know as soon as we can. So we're here for you right now. blogtalkradio.com. I want to give a shout out to other NDB media shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Travel Itch Radio on the 14th tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. For more than 80 years, Hostelling International USA has provided a network of affordable accommodations in converted mansions, reinvented lighthouses, and historic urban buildings. The nation's oldest and largest hostel grand, uh, HI, which is the Hostel International USA, hosts more than a million guests per year in nearly three dozen hostels offering environmental, social, and educational leadership in the travel industry. Find out why when Hosteling USA Vice President Aaron Chaffee visits Travel Radio for a 30-minute interview with Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lee. Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday Morning Quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning, hosted on StreamYard. Please check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. Sunday, the 17th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me for the Fear the Walking Dead online viewing party, Season 7, Episode 9, Mid-Season Opener. Follow me. The synopsis. Alicia takes refuge in the home of a mysterious stranger. With her fevers growing worse and Arno pursuing her at every turn, Alicia is forced to confront the failings of her past and how she will face her future. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega. 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Roger D. Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the talkative trio of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they digest another night of television. Please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify, And on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and good night.